Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Wiley Society Podcast. I'm Anna Ayler, and this month on the podcast, we're celebrating International Women's Day. International Women's Day on March 8th is a global day celebrating the social, economic, cultural, and political achievements of women. The day also marks a call to action for accelerating gender parity. In honor of that goal, today we're going to be speaking to two extraordinary women who not only created successful careers for themselves in academia, but also look at issues of gender in their research. Helen Dickinson is an Associate Professor of Public Service Research and Director of the Public Service Research Group at the School of Business at the University of New South Wales in Canberra, Australia. Her expertise is in public services, particularly in governance and leadership, commissioning and priority setting and decision-making. Helen has published 16 books and over 50 peer-reviewed articles, and she's also a frequent commentator in the media. Helen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Our second guest is Janine O'Flynn, Professor of Public Management at the University of Melbourne and Adjunct Professor at the Australia and New Zealand School of Government. Janine's expertise is in public management, in particular in reform and relationships. She has published extensively both books and journal articles, and she provides expert advice to a range of policymakers in Australia, Bhutan, Chile, Singapore, and the United States. And she has also participated in a range of programs that develop senior leaders in the public service, both in Australia and internationally. Among other editorial duties, Helen and Janine are also co-editors of the Australian Journal of Public Administration, which is published in partnership with Wiley. Janine, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having us. It's really, it's a big month for us. We're always excited about International Women's Day, and we have a lot of other activities planned around it this year, but we're particularly excited to talk to you both about your experiences, not only because of the research that you do, but your experiences as women in research. And I wonder if you could start out um, just telling us a little bit about your background. What got you interested in your area of research? Uh, I sort of fell into a research career, actually, which surprises most people when when you tell them that. Um, But the thing that really grabs me about the area I work in, which is very much around changes in government and public sector reform, was having very personal sort of exposure to that, seeing um, my parents were, were both working in the public sector and seeing changes that were going on. It was really a, a dinner table conversation. So for me, it was really just something that was in the world I grew up in. And as I started to sort of carve out my own interests in, in terms of what I wanted to do when I went down the path of a research career, this sort of came back to me um, in some ways. And so I really started to pursue that. I became much more passionate about exploring these issues. What happens when things in in big governmental programs change? What does that mean for uh, people who are involved in delivering them? And what does it mean for those who are receiving them? Mm. Yeah. And Helen, what about you? So like like Janine, and and I think probably a, a number of other people who end up in the public policy, public administration, um, Field. I think roots are not necessarily a, a clear kind of um, progression. And, and I didn't initially start out intending to go either into uh, research or into this area of uh, study. And I think often policy and, and public management uh, are areas that people discover over 
time as they as they work through other uh, kind of interests. So, so my academic background is in is in geography with a particular interest in health services, and, and eventually I decided I'd do a, a PhD in in social policy. Um, and so I'm interested in public services and, and public service reform in my research. And uh, I think that's because, uh, like Janine, public services are, are really essential for, for many of us living in, in contemporary societies in terms of, um, you know, what, what they offer us. But also I think they're a really good um, expression of the sorts of things that we value as, as a society or as a group. Um, and so I've got a particular interest in the role that relationships play within public services. And so they are, you know, relationships between public and private agencies, uh, between the citizen and, and state, professionals, non-professionals, technology and individuals, and, and so on. And Janine, you mentioned um, that this was sort of in the air for you uh, growing up, that it was something that you were thinking about early on. Was there anyone in particular who inspired you or acted as a role model for you when you were just starting out, pursuing it as a career? Yeah, I mean, I think it, the, at the time there was a very a sort of um, reform reformist government, and so there was a lot of um, people both in the sort of policy world who were, were starting to explore these ideas. But in the academy, uh, for me, I think there was a couple in particular who were really um, inspirational to me. And at the time I was starting my PhD, I was in a school um, that for the first time ever had appointed a female head of the school, which was um, a hugely sort of significant event in the university, but also for the group of, of scholars who were coming through the system at that time. Um, I was also very lucky to have to my um, PhD supervisor, an extraordinary woman, again, who had come to Australia from, from overseas and who taught me a lot, I think, about what being a modern academic is really about. She was extremely influential in how I went about uh, sort of positioning myself in the field and and sort of guiding me on that journey. And she went back to the UK halfway through my PhD. But I think when I've been asked in the past to sort of name people, it was it was those two women, extraordinarily um, influential intellectually, but also in a sense of how to be an academic in in sort of our contemporary times and how to do that very successfully as extraordinary women. Mm. Well, that's interesting, it's how to be an academic as an important thing to learn. And I'm curious, Helen, if you have similar people that come to mind for you. I, I do, but not in the sense of kind of pinpointing one or two individuals as, as kind of role models. Um, I, was, I was really lucky at the start of, of my career. I got to work with some really great colleagues at, at the University of the Birmingham in the UK where I, where I started out. And... Um, a number of these individuals acted as, as role models in, in different sorts of uh, ways. So some of them were really excellent teachers. Some were great researchers, others amazing thinkers. Some were really good administrators and others were fantastic at, at kind of communicating to a number of different audiences. So I don't think one particular individual or, or one particular model, but I, I certainly took inspiration from... Uh, a number of individuals over the different kind of um, aspects of what I wanted to develop in terms of my career. Janine, you named in particular a couple of women who were hugely influential for you and Helen. I don't know if if 
your uh, group of people includes you know, women and men, but I think often when you speak to um, women in research, they will name um, a another woman in their field as someone who was important in, in, in some way. And I'm curious, I want to ask you both, you know, as women in research, do you think that there is something the research community and perhaps societies and associations in particular, something that they could be doing to encourage greater gender diversity in academia? And we know this is still a huge issue and in some fields more than others, but how can we be encouraging more women to pursue these types of careers? It's a really difficult um, sort of challenge, but it's one that we have to confront. And I think there's sort of small things that we can do and also there's huge things that we have to do. I'm not a not a big sort of advocate, I think, anymore of the idea of mentoring. I think it's become relatively institutionalised and, and for me what I think tends to work much more effectively is is taking the opportunity when spaces own up to open up um, to really champion great people into positions and into roles, whether that's academic or into the societies that we represent um, and so on. And so for me, there's a sort of a role of, of championing that comes. And the more senior you become in the field, the more um, I really have an obligation to do that um, for people who are coming up. And whether that is when you get a phone call from a recruitment organisation saying, who do you think are the best people, you know, make sure that there's phenomenal women on that list. Some of the, the problem that we have is that women don't end up on lists. So whether it's making awards uh, in the field, prominent awards in the field, um, I've seen too many times lists fully of men. It's absolutely unacceptable. And so we have to intervene into that process and really make it quite explicit that that's unacceptable um, and, and make a point that we have to see women on those lists. We have to see not only women, but we have to see a diversity of people on that list. So... Um, intervening when you have the uh, opportunity when you're in positions of influence to do that is extraordinarily important. And some of those are, are really um, sort of not big deal interventions. They're ones when you're sitting on a society, when you're uh, you know, sitting in a judging panel, when you're elected to look at nominees, when you're asked to nominate people for prizes, nominate women. Um, and often when they get on the list, they win, but we have to get them on the list first. And then I think there's bigger structural um, issues around how we think about um, uh, careers themselves, how we think about um, processes of appointment and promotion and so on, um, but also how we even think about who are the, the big leaders in our field. Often um, we go immediately to a group of, uh, you know, shall I say, older white men. Um, and... Our field is incredibly international, it's extraordinarily diverse, and it's populated by an incredibly diverse array of people around the world. But we're still stuck, I think, particularly on a very Western view of the field, and that privileges a certain group of people in being thought of as the big thinkers. Helen, what are your thoughts on that? I agree entirely with everything Jenny said there, and you know, one of the reasons that this stuff is so difficult to move um, because there isn't one kind of easy or quick fix. So, you know, there's a broad range of factors that, that lead us to the situation. Um, as you mean, so some of them are structural factors and others are uh, cultural and, and more difficult to uh, to move along. And I'm reminded in talking about this of some research that myself and colleagues did 
um, uh, about 18 months or so back, looking at the underrepresentation of women in medical leadership roles. And I think there are a lot of similarities in uh, in the two professionalised fields. But we found, you know, that there were the sorts of interpersonal and structural barriers that Janine talked about in terms of women seeking to take on these roles, but also that women sometimes internalised um, the messages that they were being given. They're not necessarily uh, explicit messages, you know, that women can't do this, but as Janine said, where you don't have people being nominated for awards or going up for those top roles, then that sends particular symbolic messages to women about the kind of value that's placed on you. I, I think Janine's right in that what we need to do is make sure that women are, are visible in the field. We need to, you know, nominate for award and and celebrate in the same way as male, male colleagues. And um, there's a great group in the public admin field called Academic Women in Public Administration who uh, are, are organising to do exactly the sorts of things that we've been talking about and making sure that women are nominated for awards, that people know about um, know about positions when they come up vacancies, um, and also offer senior women to um, mentor and to sponsor people. Um, I think, you know, we need to look at how we advertise positions and, and recruit uh, and, and obviously the sorts of policies that we have around um, academic careers is, is, you know, it's really difficult to be in the early stages of an academic career and have a young family or, or any other caring responsibilities that you're active in. And so, you know, whether that's, that's whether you're male or, or female. Um, and so a lot of things that we're talking about today aren't just things that are helpful for, for women, but for, for men more broadly. Um, and I think particularly in terms of associations, having transparent selection processes and criteria and opening them up to nominations, all too often they're done kind of uh, internally um, with very little opportunity to influence those. And I think there, if there are particular issues in certain associations or certain groups, like quotas, um, and making sure that we have a particular proportion of representation is, is a really important way to shift activity. Well, given all of that and given the complexity, I mean, you're absolutely right, there's so much at play here. And in some cases, it's it's not that there aren't, say, enough women in the field or entering the field. It's just that they're not being recognized. They're not being held up in the same way. And so they don't have that visibility and they can lead to sort of a feeling that they're not there, even though they are. Um, given all of that, I'm curious, what, what would be one piece of advice um, that you would offer say, a young woman um, hoping to pursue an academic career? I think, for me, I guess there's something about um, knowing yourself and, and trusting your your own uh, judgment because a lot of people will want to give you advice. Some of it will be solicited. Some of it will be utterly unsolicited. So I think it's really important that you know what matters um, to you. I mean, career, academic careers can develop in lots of different um, sorts of ways. And I think you need to have a really good sense of what you want to do and what you don't want to do and what you're willing to do and you're not willing to do in terms of making those different um, trade-offs as, as you develop your career. So, and, and I think what that helps you to do is to make decisions in a, in a positive way because you need to do something that you enjoy, I think. And if you don't, then it becomes a, a huge kind of, um, slog. And I know you asked for one piece of advice, but I guess the, the second one is if you find really good people um, who you trust and give you really good advice, then make sure that you keep them around you and, and 
I've been really lucky to do that with a, a few really great people over my career, including Janine here. Janine, what about you? It's um, it's a really, as Helen said, it's a really challenging thing, and I think we absolutely agree on on the first piece of advice she gave, which is sort of um, in an Australian terminology, trust your gut. Now, often you're going to want to seek advice from people, and there's nothing, and people give you conflicting advice. That's good because what it's telling you is that as you progress through your career, you're going to encounter that. Some people will say to take on leadership roles early. Some people say you shouldn't do it until you're very senior. And both of those strategies can work in a career. Um, I was told very early in my career that it was absolutely crazy to step into a senior um, leadership role in the school where I was at the Australian National University. But if I hadn't have done it, um, I wouldn't have the career that I have today, which has allowed me to do exactly what um, Helen said, which is develop a real portfolio and um, so I suppose if I had to give one piece of advice, it's listen to your gut, and I'll give a second because I can never only give one. Um, <laughs> second is learn to say no. Many people will tell you um, that they've got a job for you and it would be really look great on your CV. And uh, often it may not look great on your CV and often it's something that might take a lot of your time and you might feel like you're doing something valuable. And so when you feel that you're having an impact and doing something valuable, people are highly motivated and can carry additional work. But to me, it's also about saying what are things that I don't want to do um, and what are things that are not going to really have an impact in my field, in my school, with my students, with my colleagues. And, and I think that can often be a good, a good test of, um, of that. Good, good advice for many situations, I think. Thank you both. A final question, and I this may feel and sound very, very basic, but I, I am curious because people have very different answers to this question sometimes. How do you think the research community benefits from the contributions of women in research? Well, I think for me, I mean, there's, a, there's lots of different ways to answer that. If I put my sort of research hat on, I'd say that any field that sort of excludes half of the population on the basis of its gender from... Um, undertaking research or from their perspective in the field is a desolate field. I think uh, we have extraordinary women in our field who are covering absolutely every um, sort of patch of that territory um, and without their contributions we would have a much poorer field for it. So I think there's sort of a, a sort of basic answer which is around the more voices that we have and the, the more varied perspectives we have, whether that's around gender or um, ethnicity or cultural uh, differences, the better. But I also think in our field, which for a long time has been extraordinarily sort of dominated by a very Western and very masculine view, um, in a sense, of, of research about the functioning of government and the machinery of government and so on, that the sort of movement of women into that field and um, the way that they have carved out, I think, extraordinary contributions to that can't be sort of undersold. Yeah, absolutely. Helen, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I echo um, Janine's thoughts there. And I mean, you know, the trite answer to the question is, is I guess, women benefit research enormously. Uh, and, you know, we can't have a, a research community produce effective work if it's only a small proportion of those that it, that it represents. Um, and I think there's loads of examples of research from fields like health where you get the de development of 
medications or particular treatments and and we find that you know far more women die uh, when they receive these because um, they've been developed by and tested solely on on men and so you know women's involvement as research subjects in those processes let alone religious researchers um, is, is really uh, important and and you know women do all sorts of incredibly important work around the research community you know we can't forget the you know all of the women who are really important in doing the everyday kind of minutiae um, of research work. They're not just the people who kind of are reporting that and getting their names uh, into the journals. And so without the involvement of women, we'd have both poorer kind of um, processes and outcomes of research. So, um, yeah, so we can't forget those women who are involved in those ways. But, you know, as we've talked about before as well, um, Seeing women actively involved in research is also important because it signals to other women that research is a, a possibility and, and you know that you can be uh, included in those sorts of conversations. Yeah, expanding the definition of who can fill different types of roles in research and, and elsewhere. Well, this has been an absolute pleasure, fascinating conversation. Thank you again, um, both for for joining us uh, on the podcast this month. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. Bye-bye. Janine and Helen talked a lot about how important it is to recognize women in the field, and that's something that societies and associations are perfectly placed to help with. Whether it's making sure that women are included on nomination lists for awards or key leadership positions, or working towards greater gender parity on editorial boards, there is so much that societies can do to help the most visible and celebrated people in their community reflect the diversity of the wider world, and research and knowledge is all the richer for it. Thanks again for joining our conversation, and I hope you'll tune in again next month. Until then, I'm Anna Ayler. Our editorial advisory group includes Alexa Dugan, David Nicholson, Sarah Fibbs, Deb Wyatt, and Nielsen Turner. Our theme music for this episode was provided by Jason Shaw and edited by Dennis Velasco. You can listen to previous episodes and learn when new episodes are released by subscribing to the Wiley Society podcast in iTunes. You can also sign up for our mailing list to learn more about what's happening at Wiley and other news and trends in research publishing by going to exchanges.wiley.com societies.